From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. This coming Tuesday, June 25th, is a special day to many of us in the food world. It's Bourdain Day. It was established by Eric Repair and Jose Andres to celebrate the life of the late Anthony Bourdain. So this week, we're airing our tribute to the man that many of us simply knew as Tony. We aired it last year, shortly after he passed. Tony touched so many of our lives by bringing the world to us, expanding our imaginations not only when it came to food, but also our neighbors in far-flung places. You can imagine how much he meant to those of us at Good Food. Some of us wouldn't do what we do if not for him. I had the honor of interviewing Anthony Bourdain several times over the years. I'm sharing a few of those conversations as we devote this show to a friend, teacher, and culinary giant. To the best of our knowledge, this is my first interview of Anthony from July 2000. It centers on the recently released book, Kitchen Confidential. In 1999, Bourdain wrote a widely read piece for The New Yorker called Don't Eat Before Reading This. The article lifted the veil on the chaotic, often dysfunctional world of restaurant kitchens while introducing his unique point of view to the world. Brutally honest, slightly jaundiced, yet wickedly funny. The success of that article led to the publication of Kitchen Confidential as breakthrough tell-all about the restaurant world. This is Bourdain before the first television show airs, before his life totally blew up. So what's it like to be branded a traitor to your craft? Um, I have to say that uh, since the book came out, I've never had so much free booze and free food in my <laughs> life. Uh, chefs and cooks everywhere seem to see me as the poster boy for bad behavior in kitchens and uh, reaction in the industry. I mean, people who actually work in the business of cooking and, and serving food uh, seem to really enjoy the book. So that's really who I wrote the book for in the first place. So things are going pretty well. It's pretty funny because uh, after I read it, I was just talking about it to everybody I knew. And people who have never worked in in the industry just could not believe that it was at all real. Like, oh, come on. Mm -hmm. And then people who are in the industry are just so, it is so completely right on. But then I started to wonder about what it must be like for a diner, a consumer, to have read your book. Tell me about some of the uh, the feedback you got. Well, you know, the uh, the don't eat fish on Monday thing seems to have entered, you know, the, the, the popular uh, lexicon. And the people are unduly terrified of recycled bread. Uh, you know, French food grew up around the whole the tradition of use everything, waste nothing. I mean, the whole reason French food is good is because they... They know what to do with leftovers and how to coax good flavor out of the odd, nasty bits. That's what great cuisine's all about. So I really didn't intend this book as a, as a cautionary or, or I'm not advocating changing anything in the business. I'm a little mystified by it all. I mean, I don't mind the idea that, that I'm eating bread from somebody else's table uh, as long as they didn't uh, slobber on it and there's not a big hunk missing. I, you know, I don't care. Now, the, the, <clears throat> the not eating fish on Monday, for those who haven't read the book, what is that cautionary tale? Well, just the, in, in New York and apparently in most other major cities, the fish markets are closed on Saturday and Sunday. And so you are less likely. I mean, if you're going to a three- or four-star restaurant, obviously they have sources they can get fish right off the dock. But a, a lot of cost-conscious chefs will, of course, unload whatever fish they have left over from the weekend on Monday, as will the fish purveyor who's delivering the fish. So really, I, I well, a little less than innocently, I was suggesting that people maybe wait till Tuesday if they're going to order fish. 
this has become, people took this very seriously, apparently. You know, it's become suddenly never eat fish on Monday. <laughs> I'm wondering if you could sort of meditate a little bit on the phrase mise en place as a way of describing sort of the perfect chef mentality. Well, mise en place means literally uh, put in place or everything in its place. It refers, again, literally to your setup as a, as a line cook. Uh, what you have on station, your salt, your pepper, uh, you know, your garnishes and sauces and, you know, everything you need to get through uh, an average line shift. But what it really means, mise en place is more a state of mind, a religion uh, of most chefs. It, it is a general sense that everything is where it should be, uh, that the universe is in order, uh, and I don't know, there was a, it's sort of a metaphysical space that exists outside of all cooks. There's a saying in my kitchen, don't mess with my mise, you know, don't, don't mess with my state of mind, my state of readiness, don't steal my salt, don't mess with my knife. So it's sort of um, in, in a very small, intimate submarine-like uh, space of a professional kitchen, your mise en place is, is your tiny little area, your setup, all the things that make it possible for you to do your job uh, the way you like to do it. I'd like to know, now that you have this ability to be free from the kitchen, what you have chosen to do with your time. Uh, I've been eating my way around the world uh, for a book uh, called A Cook's Tour and for a TV Food Network show, God help me. <laughs> <laughs> They've been following me around the world, watching me kill things, fire automatic weapons, eat live reptile hearts, uh, drinking blood, and uh, having adventures. Uh, I don't think... <laughs> I really don't know <laughs> why they allowed this to happen. You're going to be like the crocodile guy on Animal Planet, but with food? Uh, even more scarier and more offensive. But but uh, we, we're, we're going to some really cool places. I mean, I've been eating in Khmer Rouge-controlled northwestern Cambodia, Vietnam, Russia, uh, Morocco. Um, T- tell me some stories. P- pick some outrageous story. Um well, I was just telling a friend, I, uh, I enjoyed uh, something in Vietnam, the live beating heart of a cobra, where they bring it out, the, your live hissing, rearing cobra, uh, let it strike at your face a few times, presumably without biting it. And uh, then they zip the little heart out, put it in a little tiny little white dish, and uh, it is still beating as it goes into your mouth and, in fact, all the way down your throat. And you wash that down with a shot of blood and rice wine and follow that with a shot of, blood, of bile and rice wine. So, have you taken a, a large medical kit along with you? Uh, no, but I had a full checkup uh, when I got back from uh, from one wing of this trip. I mean, I've been standing up in a, in a kitchen for most of my adult life. So, to suddenly be given the opportunity to squat in the jungle with a bunch of XVC, uh, you know, eating uh, clay-roasted duck... Uh, you know, all I knew of the world was what I saw in Apocalypse Now and saw in the movies, and it looked pretty cool to me, and I said, I want to do that. And as soon as I was able, I, I did it. This cobra-eating incident, is this a, a very traditional, sort of deeply rooted cultural thing? The line between medicine and food is gets kind of thin uh, in the East. And uh, so there's a lot of food. Basically, something's really scary to eat. Generally, it's accompanied by the phrase, this will make you strong. Um, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of uh, concern about in that area among the male population <laughs> because, you know, everything that wriggles, crawls, or hisses at you seems to make you strong. So, you know, I don't know. It's expensive by, by Vietnamese standards. It's not, a, it's not everyday food. And so the cobra eating incident, did it happen in a city or was it a country? Saigon. Wow. In a restaurant? Yeah. 
It's called by expats, expatriates uh, in Saigon refer to it as the endangered species restaurant, <laughs> uh, though in fact there are no endangered species there. There is a lot of things you, well, you didn't know existed before and certainly hadn't thought of eating. You mentioned also that you've been to Morocco. D- tell me in particular what, what uh, you experienced that was out of the norm. Um, well, there are around five things to eat in all of Morocco. There's, there's uh, you know, couscous, tagine, brochette, pastilla, and uh, meshwa. Meshwa. Yeah. Uh, I had meshwa out in the Sahara with uh, some Tuaregs, the blue dudes, as I called them. Uh, you know, they dig a pit with a clay oven, and they put uh, put a whole lamb in there to roast, and you, as, as elsewhere in Morocco, you eat it with your hands. That was kind of cool. I had always dreamed of, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. I wanted to look around and see nothing but sand and eat with my hands. And, and tell me about the Tuaregs. Um, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm a nomadic uh, tribe. The original Moroccans who emigrated from Yemen hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, used to have a, a have a long and glorious tradition of slitting throats and, and uh, troublemaking. And now they lead tourists around on camels in, in the Sahara and cook lamb for crazy Americans. <laughs> okay, given that there is this this need to commiserate in, in, in the, the food business, which in, in itself leads one to think that there's a lot of negativeness associated with a lot of stuff you have to slog through to mm-hmm. get the satisfaction of the good stuff. What is it, do you think, in a personality that makes people need to do it? I don't know. Somebody asked me the other day, what, what are the best things and the worst things about cooking professionally? And I realized that the answers to both questions are exactly the same. You know, the heat, the pressure, the insanity, the maniacs you work with, uh, the relentlessness of it all. We're all pressure junkies. You know, we complain about it. It drives us crazy, but we, we clearly love it. And, you know, what, what keeps us coming back, I think, is that not just the instant gratification of being able to make food, something useful with your hands that people like, but there's that sense that you're part of a secret society that, that's worldwide, and it really, truly is. I mean, at this point, I could tell line cooks in just about any country in the world who, who come out to readings or things like that. There is a shared worldview, uh, a shared point of view, uh, a shared mania that we all have. I, I don't know, you know what drives people initially into the business. Uh, I suspect it, it is not a love of fresh morels and truffles that drives most of us. I think it starts out with... You know, people who, for one reason or another, won't or can't work a nine-to-five job. They're just uninterested in, in being normal. Uh, maybe they have bad uh, communication skills, you know, which, is, which makes this whole celebrity chef thing so funny. We're the, we're the least suited profession of all the professions to be thrown into the public eye. You know, most of us, I'm sure, had little notes attached to our report cards as kids. You know, so-and-so needs a controlled environment. You know? <laughs> So hand them a really small environment with a lot of knives. It, it's a regimented military hierarchy. It's the only structure a lot of us know. And one of the great things about kitchens is that you were thrown, you were forced to work with people you never, ever would have met or, or been, been close to in any other work situation. And, and there's a freedom to say anything you want, to, to, to speak in completely offensive, uh, politically incorrect ways. And, and yet, at the end of the day, you are judged entirely by the job you do. Um, you know, to be really intimate, you know, to have that kind of close relationship with, you know, people of every background, nationality, religion, predilection. I don't know a lot of workspaces where that, those kind of bonds are formed. And that really lasts with you and, and keeps you in because there is nothing else like it. What do the guys, the, the, the line cooks that have worked with you for years, think about this success? Um, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with it because I feel I've deserted them. And I, I, I think that if I'm a traitor, if I'm an Alger Hisser or Benedict Arnold, it's because I've left my kitchen. And because I'm not on the line anymore, and I feel uh, a little 
it, it's, writing is shameful compared to cooking somehow. Uh, but the the people I've worked with over the years have all been great. I mean, they're all saying, you know, it's good, you, it's good to see one of the home teams score. Well, Anthony, it's really a pleasure to f- meet you in person. I mean, I, I have to tell you that reading your book gave permission for me to have loved what I've done for so many years. I'm, by the way, I'm admiring your, your uh, broiler uh, scars there. Hugely impressed. <laughs> it's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you very much. That was my first interview with Anthony Bourdain from July 2000. We spoke almost exactly 18 years ago, shortly after his book Kitchen Confidential came out. Special thanks to former Good Food producer and current KCRW president Jen Farrow for finding the original tape in a closet. Coming up, more of our favorite moments from Anthony Bourdain on Good Food from over the years. Stay with us. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food on KCRW. This week, we're remembering a giant of the food world, Anthony Bourdain. Next up is my conversation with Anthony from 2004. This interview took place four years after the release of his breakthrough memoir, Kitchen Confidential. Here we're talking about his Les Al cookbook, which had just come out in 2004. It's a collection of recipes from Brasserie Les Al in New York, where Bourdain was an executive chef for many years. So after traveling the world, eating a variety of food that's sort of unimaginable to many, um, you come home to steak frites. What did you start to think about your own food? Um, I started to see the similarities, a a sort of commonality between, strangely enough, Thai food, Vietnamese food, Chinese food, Portuguese, Brazilian, and and the very best of of French food, which for me has always been the the sort of rustic uh, country cooking, cuisine bourgeoise, you know, classic bistro brasserie. What I I guess I saw in common, the things that that everybody outside of the English-speaking world, it seems, shares is a basic joy in eating, spending time at the table, and a cooking style free of what A.J. Liebling calls the crippling handicap of affluence, meaning <laughs> people, these are all cultures that cook, cook well and have developed a, a great cooking culture, largely because at various points in history, they had to. So what I guess I'm looking to do is, is to take the intimidation factor out of French cooking and, and in some way you know, point up that the very best of it is is poor people food made by, you know, developed largely by, you know, moms and farmers and, you know, simple people from, you know, not not from the rarefied air of temples of haute cuisine. So making this food at home, I mean, you've been making it for so long in a restaurant setting, and, and we know that there's a difference between the production that goes on in a restaurant kitchen and and what happens at home. Have you had to make a lot of changes in recipes or what kind of techniques did you use to infuse uh, the recipes with the kind of intensity that people who eat in restaurants seem to demand so much these days? Well, there's certainly, these are all the recipes from the restaurant scaled down and adjusted to, to, you know, for the home cook, certainly. 
But I think people should understand that, that the dishes that I serve in my restaurant, that all of these standards came from home and hearth. Uh, you know, most of the, uh, in fact, most of the classic techniques used even in haute cuisine, confit, uh, cassoulet, uh, slow braising, you know, these were developed as, as uh, uh, answers to, to, you know, sort of grim problems of short growing seasons, lack of refrigeration, um, all by home cooks who, who, you know, basically, you know, cut vegetables, uh, the old blade against the thumb fashion. So there's really nothing in the book that's out of reach of the home cook because there's largely uh, dishes that came from home cooks. And certainly all of the professional cooks in my restaurant, with one or two exceptions over the years, uh, arrived in this country uh, from Mexico as uh, as porters and dishwashers and were completely untrained in French cuisine and any other cuisine when, when they started to work at Leal. So uh, I think it's uh, not a stretch for, you know, anyone who can make chili or meatloaf can certainly make... Uh, Cassoulet and pate. Uh, Coco Vin, another favorite. Uh, you know, what is it? It's a big, tough, nasty bird that was too tough to roast or to saute. Some wily Frenchman ages ago figured out, well, maybe if I marinate it in red wine long enough and cook it slowly, I'll, I'll make something delicious. And through trial and error, we arrived at this timeless dish. You know, confit de canard, confit of duck. Again, oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, no refrigeration. Well, uh, maybe if I cook the duck leg in fat and then store it in its fat, I can keep it around and feed my family for a few weeks. So these are all very not only very humble things, but very delicious things. And in fact, most of the hotshot guru chefs I know, uh, when they're tired of their own haute cuisine at, or at the end of the night, this is exactly the sort of food the chefs like to eat after work. D- describe the process of making confit because it's something that really is very easy. I mean, after the first time you make it, you're like, why was I so afraid of this? Yeah. It's basically, a, you know, a duck leg rubbed with salt and pepper and then, you know, thrown in an oven, you know, covered in duck fat with a little bit of uh, rosemary, garlic, and thyme. And you just cook it until the skin separates from the knuckle and leave it stored in the fat until you need it. There you go. I mean, just couldn't couldn't be better. You can make ravioli filling out of it. You can crisp it and serve it whole. You can uh, do all sorts of things with it. Just it's it's so simple. If we were going to have a duck confit for lunch or for dinner, what other great bistro classics from from your place uh, would accompany it? Oh well, let's see. I mean, I you could serve it on a salad, for instance. But I mean, I love a soup de poisson. You know, a really nice sort of thick garlicky fennel saffrony soup de poisson made largely from fish bones. Um, a lot of these dishes, I think what, what stands in the way, the difference between professional cooking and home cooking when you're talking about dishes like this are pretty much organizational. How you set up your mise en place, you arrange your time, your space, and your plan. And I think it's largely how you approach the dish and think about it rather than what kind of skills you bring to the table. So you know, even I get, you know, I get a rush when I see celery remoulade on a menu. Oh, you know, that's or, so delicious, though. Yeah. Or, you know, D- describe describe yeah. celery remoulade. Again, ridiculously simple. It's essentially celery root, you know, fine julienne or shredded, you know, tossed with mayonnaise and, and dropped on a plate. Uh, you know, you could pretty much train a chimp to do it. And, you know, it's the good old stuff. Tony, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Always fun. Thank you. That's my conversation with Anthony Bourdain from 2004. We spoke about his Les Alles cookbook. Now for my 2006 interview with Tony. By then, he was fast becoming a household name with a few best-selling books and a television show under his belt. 
Around this time, he just recently started hosting his second TV show, this time on the Travel Channel. You might have heard of No Reservations. Here, we're talking about that show, plus a collection of essays he had just published called The Nasty Bits. You've been in incredible places. I have absolutely the best job in the world. I I get to decide where we go. I get to look at a map and say, that place looks cool, or I'm curious about that part of the world. Let's go and make television. And I travel with a small crew of three camera people and an assistant, no script, and uh, bounce through and do the best I can. I eat up as much of the country as I can. So I guess from Nasty Bits, the thing that most people are talking about is the very beginning of the book, where you're in the Arctic. Well, I'd just been up to northern Quebec and uh, hooked up with a family of Inuit uh, tribesmen. These people live above the Arctic Circle in conditions of unbelievable cold and one would think outwardly the appearance of deprivation. Not a tree for almost a thousand miles. Nothing clearly is able to grow. They've survived on, on eating seal. And so the book opens... I'm sitting in a seemingly normal home kitchen with a close family, all of whom are clustered around a tarpaulin on the floor, Bonanza reruns playing on the TV in the next room, and mom, dad, grandpa, the kids, uh, some of the tribal elders, everybody whips out a knife and starts tearing open the raw seal, and pretty soon they are all just absolutely dripping with gore. This seal opened up like a meat-filled pinata, outwardly a horrifying spectacle and and an uncomfortable one. Yet it was having seen the conditions in which they live and seeing them as they live, this incredibly loving, close-knit, generous, kind family who survive on the high blubber and oil content of the seal and have for centuries. It was one of the most heartwarming uh, meals I've ever had. And I guess in the first pages of the Nasty Bits, I I was using that as an example of how Difficult it is to convey in words or in images, for that matter, the the feeling in that room of people who lived together in a small, isolated group uh, with incredible love and respect for each other and for their traditions. And I guess I was just wrestling with, you know, how do I tell this story, you know, without missing the important part? I was so afraid that people would see in the show we did or you know, reading this lurid prose, that they would think, well, that's, that's gross, that's horrifying, it's cruel, I mean, my God, a seal, that somehow I wouldn't be able to convey the feeling in that room of the relationship between the, the, the elders uh, who literally crawl from room to room, used to as they were with growing up in the old days in igloos. And a lot of the moments in my life over the last six years are, have, have been like that. I find myself in, in places that are very hard, I, I think, to, to relate to the Western mind. You know, I've, I've eaten with headhunters in Borneo, uh, Bushmen in the Kalahari. So I'm always wrestling with my own predilection to an enjoyment of using hyperbole to describe a lurid visual situation and this growing sense that this is a beautiful world filled with nice people. Now, tell us where you're going to go next. Uh, well, let's see. A few weeks ago, I was in Ghana and Namibia and uh, just finishing up book tour and next stop, Beirut. Have you spent a lot of time in Africa before this recent no, trip? No, I'd been a few weeks in North Africa and Morocco, but I'd never been to Sub-Saharan Africa. And it was an extraordinary, um, at times, it's very demanding adventure. In terms of travel? Tough traveling. Uh, there are situations that food can be difficult. In Namibia in particular, 
you know, a lot of traveling across uh, difficult terrain, but some real adventure, uh, you know, eating with the Bushmen uh, in the Kalahari. You know, these are people who have nothing, okay? They, they don't grow things. They don't raise cattle. They're hunter-gatherers who've been doing things the same way for possibly as many as 30,000 years without really changing their lifestyle much. It's ki- kill I mean, it. that's really a lifestyle. Well, they haven't had much choice. They're a different ethnic group entirely from the rest of Africa. They're, you know, a despised ethnic minority by black Africa, and they've been marginalized as well as white Africa, and they've traditionally been pushed into less hospitable and less hospitable areas. They now live essentially in scrub and desert. So what they do is they, they shoot, they use little poison arrows that don't even have feathers on them, meaning they have to approach within 30 feet or so of their prey. They track the animal with the, once it's shot for up to two days, running, running across the scrub, then sit there, talk to the animal, apologizing for taking its life, at which point they, well, when I was with them, they chop it up and throw it with fur into a hole in the ground with a fire and, and cook it and then eat it until it's gone. And uh, that, that was t- tough going for me. I mean, every mouthful of food I had for two days had sand, fur, or <laughs> excrement in it. And uh, tough going. You must be very up on your vaccinations. Uh, yes, and um, Amodium, the traveling chef's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Ghana, on the other hand, a whole different story. Very, very exciting. Spicy stews and soups, even in rustic situations. Very sophisticated flavorings and textures. Good stuff. What do you think makes a good traveler? And you've traveled so much. Can you give advice to people who want to move away from the the sort of regular routes? And- Put all your fears and prejudices and preconceptions aside. You're going to see a lot of behavior and a lot of food uh, and ingredients and food preparations and menu items, let's say, that you would never approve of in your normal life. The general rule of thumb, eat without fear. Eat local exclusively. You know, anytime you eat in the hotel or Western-style food or what the concierge at your hotel tells you is the best restaurant in town because, of course, they're, they're thinking what you, silly American, will like. Eat what your taxi driver or someone you meet in the street says gives them pleasure. If you see a food stall of dubious hygiene with a lot of locals lined up to get in to get, you know, the noodle soup they sell there or the pig's head taco... Chances are it's pretty good. Otherwise, they wouldn't have all those people lined up. Once you've eaten those kinds of meals, once you you always accept what's offered by generous people, regardless whether it's something you'd ordinarily eat, once you've had a few drinks, however dubious the source of that particular product or how deadly, the world will open up to you. People are never more generous, uh, less guarded, and more willing to, to let you into the rest of their lives than during and after a meal. Once you've broken bread, the rest of a culture will open up in ways that that you would never, ever get to see if you stay on the tour bus. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. That's my conversation with Anthony Bourdain from 2006. We talked about his book of essays called The Nasty Bits and his food and travel show, No Reservations. For most of his career, he thought of himself as a consummate outsider, the man outside the establishment, throwing rocks from a distance. But by 2010, things had begun to change for him. That's when I interviewed him for the last time on Good Food. You know, I'm a guy who's eaten a lot more than his share of fantastic meals. I'm one of those, you know, jaded, overprivileged people you hate hearing about. He had just published his book, Medium Raw, which was a follow-up memoir to Kitchen Confidential. 
I spoke with this culinary globetrotter about his newfound notoriety and much more. You talk about how a real sublime eating experience should allow the eater to submit and give over cul- culinary-wise. Ideally, uh, uh, eating should be a completely emotional, non-intellectual experience. It should be about pleasure, letting yourself go. You know, I've said that, you know, particularly for chefs, if you look at how chefs eat, you know, they understand that their whole lives are about control, controlling their environment, their, their, their crew, manipulating the forces of the universe that, that, that uh, make food behave the way it does. Uh, so when they eat... Uh, chefs above all other people, I think, tend to really want to make no decisions at all. They want to relax. They don't want any intrusion. They don't want to be aware of the service. They just want to walk. They generally walk into restaurants and say, you know, I'll have what you're good at. You know, just do it to me. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I feel very strongly about that, that those are the meals I, I enjoy most. And it's also, wonderfully enough, it seems to be the direction that restaurants are going. Yeah, you talk a lot about that. I mean, you you quoted Jonathan Gold talking about this new trend for younger chefs that are coming on the scene now. They're almost like rock stars. The way the experience is stripped of a lot of the um, sort of BS that used to inhabit the dining experience. Well, there there is an empowered new chef class. The chef at almost any level of uh, any quality chef is a much more powerful person or influential as far as the their their dining public than 10 years ago chefs are free freer to suggest this is what i think you should be eating you know this is what i do this is what i'm good at you either like it or you don't um and customers to their credit are far more sophisticated than they used to be and far more trusting interested in and willing to to take a chance, maybe eat out of their comfort zone and, and try something new. So that's led to a lot of restaurants that are really seriously stripped down now, much more democratic, where it's really all about the food uh, and, and the chef's idea of the food and not about the napperies, the crystal, uh, the, the snooty waiter, all of the nonsense. When, when I read your writing, I see a man who has traveled some pretty rocky ethical roads And yet it seems that you've developed a very keen sense of what you believe to be ethical and unethical behavior. Now, what really pisses you off? People who hurt the industry, people who claim to love food, love cooking, love restaurants, and yet seem to hold the people who actually prepare their food in contempt. Um, I'm at the point in my life where I have a very low threshold for that. That sort of nonsense, and that was very much the the the, the tenor of much of the classic food writing. You know, uh, the royal we, um, the 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 sense of entitlement and expectation that the, the chef is there to serve, that the chef should be present. Uh, that uh, uh, that irritates me. Uh, hypocrisy, of course, though I'm guilty of it. I despise certainty. Uh, I, I I think uh, the willingness to to believe the likelihood that you could be wrong about something I think is a virtue. Being able to sort of assess what the profession is like really from from this extraordinary sort of trip you've taken from where you were to what you get to see and experience now, who do you really, really admire and why? Well, Fergus Henderson, I think, is maybe the most influential chef in the world that few people know even know his name. He's influenced menus and chefs who've never eaten at his restaurant or read his book. Who is he? Uh, he's the chef of St. John Restaurant in London. Uh, he, he wrote a groundbreaking book called Nose to Tail Eating, published here, I think, as The Whole Beast. And chefs, a, a circle of chefs really responded powerfully to that and, and started to do run with that concept. And, 
You know, it's uh, six degrees of separation, but menus have changed. And anytime you see a kidney or tripe or or a pig's foot um, on a menu uh, or bone marrow, chances are uh, it's a, there's a Fergus Henderson fan somewhere. I respect him a great deal. Uh, David Chang, I admire. I like a lot of the new school guys, and I also have enormous respect for old school guys. You know, people like, uh, um, you know, Jacques Pepin or, or uh, Eric Repair. You know, I, I, I admire anyone who cooks and works hard in a restaurant. You know, anyone who goes, Mario Batali, people who who decide early on who they are, what they want to be, and, and do that relentlessly. Uh, I admire that. Ruth Burdain. I love Ruth Burdain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for people who have no idea who Ruth Burdain is, you describe him slash her. Um, Ruth Bourdain, well, this all started, Eric Repair and I were doing a, a radio show where we started to read Ruth Reichel's tweets. <laughs> all right, listen, it is time for a little segment that we're going to be doing every week called The Tao of Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot this great button. Uh, I've been following Ruth Reichel's tweets. Uh, someone, my wife pointed out, them out to me, and they're, they're magnificently... Well, they're deranged in a really cool, good way. It's like like she's living inside an MFK Fisher novel. I, I don't know where she's writing from, but if you if you read this stuff, it's it's almost haiku. Peeling oranges on this post-storm morning, snow sparkling off the mountains, sun pouring through the windows, fingers scented with citrus. And then strange things started to happen. She started emulating our version of herself, like all her tweets are now in haiku form, it seems. And more hilariously, somebody, no one knows who, created a, a, a Twitter character named Ruth Bourdain mashing up Ruth Reichel's existing tweets with how they imagine I would describe the same event. So it's basically our two personas mashed together. And, you know, Ruth and I email each other. She, she has very mixed emotions about this. She, she, she said, we were invited to an event together, and I said, I, I just don't know whether we can do it. You know, we're already a, par- you know, a parody now. This is just worlds collide. It's just too strange, you know. We, we can't be seen in public together. We have to talk about new media. Mm-hmm. With all of the vehicles now for a regular person to become a, a food know-it-all, mm-hmm. there is so much information out there. There are people going to restaurants um, slavishly photographing. What do you think about all that? Um, I think it doesn't matter. I think it, it's the the dinosaur is is dead. The body's dead. Only the brain has yet to receive the message. You know, print media, food criticism, is is you know someone. It's like someone described film criticism now. You know, it's like a bunch of panicky chickens. You know, uh, clucking with despair as the foxes gnaw through the cage. You know, this is the world we live in now. Uh, it's more democratic. The blogosphere, it's one big white bathroom wall. Anyone can write anything they want on it. Uh, there will be divergent opinions. There will be, there will be some that, that carry more weight than others. But in the end, I believe that, that an interested reader will arrive at a consensus. I will say that as much fun as I make of Internet nerds and bloggers, when we're researching a program for no reservations, we're reaching out to the local bloggers, somebody who spent six years of their life eating street food in Saigon um, and nothing but. Uh, is a much more valuable resource, chances are, than any major news outlet who could only afford to send somebody out there for, what, you know, two weeks, a week? It's the future. Embrace it or, you know, die. You smoked three packs a day Mm -hmm. for decades, and you quit. Did the taste of food change for you? No, no, my life is in no way improved. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. No way improved. Uh, you know, well, you're going to have greater longevity, one hopes. Uh, I feel obliged. You know, it's not. All, I'm a father of a three-year-old girl. Uh, obviously, I can't. I couldn't smoke in the apartment with her. I, you know, I live many flights up. I mean, I couldn't take the elevator down every time. It, it finally became more difficult for me to smoke than. Than, than to quit. I was taking ridiculous, going to ridiculous, humiliating lengths. You know, I, I got busted by the building manager smoking in the service stairs. I felt like a high school kid. I'm sorry, Mr. Krabappel. You know, but I, I wish I could tell you that food tastes, you know, wonderful now and my life has improved. I, I did it for my daughter. I, it's not about me. I feel like I have an obligation to at least try to live a little longer. You know, uh, yeah, I'm waiting for the reward and I'm frankly not seeing it. What do you prepare for her? Your little one. Well, she likes uh, she, like any little girl. You know, I'm not. I'm not looking to raise an annoying little foodie. You know, I, is anything more annoying? You know, oh, our little hunter and you know Samantha. You know, she, they love sushi. Well, do. Um, yeah, she likes uh, you know hot dogs and uh, grilled cheese sandwiches and pasta with butter. But because you know uh, my wife's Italian and we spend a lot of time in Europe, and because I am who I am, interesting food tends to hit our table. And you never know what she's going to reach out and grab. I mean, you know, and I have to admit, I feel if I see her grabbing tripe goulash or a raw oyster, as has happened, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about her. Very proud. You have probably eaten pork in more <laughs> forms than any other human on the planet. Yeah. Do you know there's a pork-free version of the show for Malaysia and for, for many You're Muslim kidding. countries? And I don't know where they find them. The extra material, it's like half the show. So you don't actually shoot additional things that aren't pork? Uh, no, they somehow, I don't know what they do. They use additional footage that we have uh, and re-edit, uh, pixelate. Um, Unbelievable. They pixelate like it's porno. Yeah. Do, do you feel that we've reached the... The apotheosis of everything pork can be. <laughs> I mean, I love pork belly and I love bacon, but I I I don't need to buy the T-shirt. You know, I'm hoping that the next big thing. All my friends think I'm crazy. I'm hoping the next big thing is pork ta- pigtails, crispy fried pigtails. Oh, those are good. Mm, lots of cartilage. Cartilage and meat and fat, and it's a perfect sort of blend of sticky, fatty, fleshy, crispy. Goodness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I understand that you had a recent trip to Paris that excited you. Thrilling. Who knew? I went with Eric Repair. Eric Repair, of course, is the absolutely beautiful French chef, best known for Luc Benedin in New York. A number of things happened that were really, I thought, significant. One, you know, a lot of the young chefs now are opening these. Uh, there's a new movement called the fooding uh, or the bistronomy movement, where it's basically young Michelin quality chefs often trained in the big houses of the, you know, the old style houses who've opened up tiny little pub looking spots with bare table, you know, no tablecloths, serving prefix, you know, four courses, no menu, just, you know, this is what we're cooking today, four courses of of really excellent, excellent two star or three star Michelin quality food sometimes for 35 to 50 euros. It's it's something of a revolution. I sat there and watched Eric repair have to defend himself for the crime of running a three-star Michelin restaurant, for, for the crime of running one of the world's great restaurants. Because these, a lot of these young people are saying, you know, that's the enemy. This is what we're reacting against. Why is it the enemy? Tablecloths, glassware, old, old style. The, the type of restaurant that continues to get three stars and classically that, that, that Michelin finds acceptable. So to see, you know, one of the world's great chefs of one of the world's great restaurants have to 
account for himself in any way was a <laughs> something to see. I know he was taken back by it. But then to go with Eric later that night to one of these young pups restaurants, and it was brilliant. It was just brilliant. And then also to hear young French chefs talking about Brooklyn and David Chang wow. is an awesome change in the landscape. Imagine five years ago hearing French chefs even mentioning America as, a, as a, any kind of influence, acknowledging that there's any American chef who, who they find inspiring. Uh, so that was, to me, uh, very different. And I have to say, Paris is fun again. It's exciting. There are tons of these little places. It's affordable. It's democratic. I think the utility of the grand Michelin-style restaurant is clearly on the decline. I think, as, as Eric says, there will always be the Hermes bag, you know, and there will always be people who can afford that and, will, and want it. That market will never disappear. But I think the lesser brands, I don't think people are less... I think fewer and fewer people are going to want to endure the fine dining experience uh, when they can go and, and basically see almost every dollar they're spending thrown at the food the exclusion of everything else. I mean, you know, Momofuku Co. in New York, you know, you're sitting there eating over a raw wood counter, you know, fed directly by a guy in a snap front dishwasher shirt listening to the Sex Pistols. It's awesome. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. That was my final conversation with Anthony Bourdain on Good Food. We spoke in 2010. After the break, a visit to Brasserie Les Halles in New York, the site of a spontaneous memorial for Anthony Bourdain. Stay with us. It's Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. As news of Anthony Bourdain's death filtered out across the world a year ago, something remarkable happened. A spontaneous memorial sprung up for him in New York almost immediately. It's centered on the former site of Brasserie Les Halles on Park Avenue. That's the restaurant where Bourdain served as executive chef while writing Kitchen Confidential. I happened to be in New York the day after his passing with our managing producer, Nick Liao. I'll never forget what we saw. There were handwritten notes taped to the windows of the restaurant. Flower bouquets and other mementos littered the ground. Throngs of mourners crowded the sidewalk. People were standing shoulder to shoulder in silence. Each of us was quietly remembering Tony in our own way. Reporter Elizabeth Coolis went out on a rainy June afternoon to hear from those visiting the site. I left some flowers and surprising, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there are wine corks, there are notes about how much he meant, there are beer bottles and beer cans, some of them with flowers in them. There's people crying. The cigarettes, you know, yes. Corona, so he, he knew how to leave. I mean, it's weird to feel such a loss for someone that you don't know personally. I mean, there's how many people, like 20 people here standing right now, and, and it's raining. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it does make you feel a little bit less crazy. <laughs> I'm glad I came down. <clears throat> it's a closure. Just kind of a farewell from afar. And I told my daughter-in-law that even some of the traffic was slowing down in honor of this frontage. I think people walk by, they see the crowd, that's why they stop, but then they stay because of how the messages have resonated. I see a lot of messages from New Yorkers and people from all around the world saying that he brought cultures that they didn't even know existed to their living room, to their dining table. And it goes on to say, um, 
I would not know of the world without you, so rest in peace. This one here I like a lot. What does it say here? Um, the Lou Reed of cooking. Because he loved, he loved Lou Reed. He loved Iggy Pop. He met Iggy Pop. And uh, I think that's a very touching message. It's beautifully written. You can't see it on radio, but the font, the treatment, the handwritten font there is very elegant. Every place that he visits, and we have been there, he described it the same way, the same way that it is. People, you know, the culture, cultures. the people, the, the, the smell, the aromas. Mm -hmm. Exactly as he described, that's exactly what we feel when we watch in those countries. I just love how he'd just go out and he'd try everything and he'd just, he wouldn't be afraid of anything that came, that came across his, his palate. You know, beating cobra hearts. Or the eyeballs. I often wondered how his tummy was the next day. I'm actually, there's a very good Indian restaurants around the corner and that's what I'm on my way to. I had forgotten about this place. I'd forgotten it was here and I'd forgotten that it was closed. And to see the effect that this public figure really had on people's lives is very unusual. It's just very moved and I'm almost in tears and I'm very surprised at how profound my reaction is. I wasn't expecting to, to cry today, but here I am. He's taught me so much tonight that I need to pay my respects. He's taught me a lot. Just to embrace change and to go out and see the world and embrace others' differences and just, I mean, basically what it's like to be a New Yorker. It's a combination of being very provincial and very worldly. It's sort of sardonic, humorous way of looking at the world around you and being open to it even as you might appear closed off to it. And if you're someone from here or of here, he very much reflected the best qualities of who we are or who we'd like to be. Imagine he was in this place, right here, where he, was, where he used to work for many years, that where he met all these Mexican cookers. And as we know, he uh, admired the Mexican cookers because he works with them for a long time. And we noticed that uh, Mexicans love him because he supports Mexicans as Mexican, as a Latin people, all the Latin people. I feel like he was so incredible at having dialogues, whether it was about food or about something as serious as the Me Too movement. And he always found a way in with someone, no matter who he was talking to or where he was. And he grew, you saw him grow. It's amazing development for a man, for a dude. You know, some of the bad attitudes of broness and dudeness. And he grew out of that. It's a, a remarkable evolution for men too, especially, to see a man like that grow into being a much more mature, uh, integrated person. It's very, very impressive. There was, there was an integrity. That's the word, integrity. The man had amazing integrity. There's a, a quote that, that he said that I, that I really like. It's that, I'm proud of the fact that I can be friends with someone whom I disagree violently about everything. And honestly, that it hits hard, especially with everything that's going on in the country. And uh, to think that a chef on a travel show could come up with something like that, it, it goes to show why there's so much love for, for him and why there's so many people here. And we feel coming here, we feel like we are close to him, you know, like we met him, you know? That's the way that I, that I feel.
Our thanks to Elizabeth Kulas for gathering those voices. After this short message, we revisit that time that Anthony Bourdain was a guest DJ at KCRW for a day. Don't go anywhere. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. We close our show with one of my favorite Bourdain interviews, one that wasn't by me. In 2010, Anthony appeared on KCRW's Guest DJ Project to talk about a few songs that changed his life. Here he is talking to Liza Richardson. That was 96 Tears. It's by Question Mark and the Mysterians is the choice of our guest DJ, Anthony Bourdain, today. And uh, you brought some amazing music. What's next? Still one of the great soundtrack records of all time. Pusher Man by my favorite song from one of my favorite records, the soundtrack to Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. This song's got all the percussion, that sort of talking drum sound, the strings. It captures a particular moment in, in, in the history of film, in the, history, the American history, and yet it's good and will always be good. This is still great driving music, you know? Drive around 35 miles an hour, you know, in an in a evening, listening to this with the windows rolled down, you, you will be a happy person. I'm your mother, I'm your daddy, I'm that nigga in the alley. I'm your doctor, when in need, want some coke, have some weed. This just tapped into everything, it, 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 sort of a, my new aspirations for materialism, uh, my love for early uh, black exploitation pictures. This just fit right in with my sort of uh, young man's uh, dreams of, of, of success. It was a sort of a pro-drug movie. I mean, the hero is a cocaine dealer, but the soundtrack and lyrics are actually very anti-drug uh, and, and, and moralistic. Just the same, it was the early 70s, and uh, you know, I was still of the mind that you know, cocaine was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yet to learn. Pusher Man, it's Curtis Mayfield, the choice of our guest DJ, Anthony Bourdain. What's next? Well, it was the end of the 60s, and I realized I'd missed it. You know, I was just turning 13, just in time to, you know, go out and, you know, be a hippie in San Francisco and have all of those good times of free love that I'd been promised in, in the magazines, and it was already over. You know, going off to a commune didn't seem like a good idea anymore. You know, hippies clearly had hygiene issues, and I didn't want to share my yogurt with anybody. And I, I was angry, disgruntled. I had nothing to believe in, and the entire musical landscape was sort of tired. I think it was 1970, and the Stooges came out with their greatest record ever, Funhouse. About as dark, angry, ugly, socially unredeeming, and utterly wonderful as music could get. And it, it just spoke perfectly to my disillusion. My, 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 my teen angst in full bloom, my rage at society, my disappointment. When I took the turn down towards the Stooges, 
I did set myself apart in a way that looking back now was something of the road to ruin. <laughs> I think it's no accident that my life started to take a downward spiral. said something about a person if you showed up with a Stooges album. You turned your back on Eric Clapton, you were over Hendrix, you were over everything you'd been listening to before, you were in a different, slightly dangerous and untrustworthy place. <laughs> you know, Stooges fans, they were not the cream of society. And I identified very closely with that right away, I responded very powerfully to this record. It was for me the antidote to everything that was going on around it. For me, it made the doors look like self-indulgent hippies. This was the real thing. Down on the Street, it's by the Stooges from the album Funhouse. It's the choice of our guest DJ today, Anthony Bourdain. He's the host of No Reservations. Next on your list is, tell me. When you're talking about sheer anger and, and sort of an update, if anything, to 96 Tears, another revenge fantasy, Sonic Reducer by the Dead Boys. doesn't get any angrier. Maybe the album was young, loud, and snotty, and that's they delivered on that promise. It's one of the most pure punk albums, I think, ever recorded, and a classic punk song. The musicianship is not the best. They were a really one of the ugliest bands to ever walk a stage. But in that sense, they really encapsulated uh, punk at its uh, lowest and best. People on the streets So that's Sonic Reducers by the Dead Boys, and it's the choice of our guest DJ, Anthony Bourdain, host of No Reservations. I'm Liza Richardson, and you're listening to KCRW.com. You've got one more choice. Love Comes in Spurts by Richard Hell and the Voidoids from Blank Generation. You know, CBGB is remembered for the Ramones and Blondie and television to a lesser extent by this band who, for me, typified what was really exuberant about that time. Oh, 
I think it's significant, this song, for its amateurishness, in the best sense of the word. Richard Hell could barely play his instrument a few years earlier. I don't know that he sang in anything resembling a classical way. And for the sadly deceased Robert Quine's sloppily brilliant guitar, it is, to me, the most wonderful guitar riff ever. You don't know whether he means it or not, nearly out of control and yet precise. I've never heard anything like it. helping us to celebrate Bourdain Day by revisiting our tribute show from last year. I've written some thoughts about Tony on the Good Food website. You can visit kcrw.com slash goodfood. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. If you missed any part of this week's show, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Many thanks to the Good Food team. They are Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, Joel Stein, and Ronnie Mickelson. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with more Good Food.